This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. We're telling you this so you can make your own independent evaluation of these opportunities. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Abin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Abin Resources is a Canadian gold exploration company with significant projects in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon. Jim, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you very much, Alice. How's the weather in the Golden Triangle right now in British Columbia? Pretty crummy. <laughs> it's probably the worst it's been in four years. This year is really the classic example of what the Golden Triangle has to offer for weather. We've been spoiled the last four years. Well, what does that look like? A lot of rain? Is there a lot of heat? Okay. Rain. Really simple. Rain and multiple cloud layers. Does that affect the drilling at all? Because I know you are starting an amazing uh, drilling program right now as we speak. No, it doesn't. Once we get everybody up there, it's good. What we're not doing this year is flying everybody up and down every day from the valley floor back to up where we're drilling. They're staying up top. We've got a camp up there and it's good for, I think it's eight people. So that's the drill crew and our geologic crew. And no, they can stay up there. They can actually walk to the drill sites and the geologic team can actually traverse to where they want to sample. So it's better than last year. We don't have to go up and down because I think we'd be losing days because of the cloud cover and the rain. You spent some time and perhaps an additional bit of revenue making sure those camps are quite sustainable for long term. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at the news release that you just put out and clearly you're focusing on the program highlights, the high-grade samples that you've uncovered in the past, and looks quite extensive. Let's review that, because these numbers are really incredible. Well, yeah, across the valley on the west side, from the north boundary high-grade zone, and it's about 500 meters to the south, but on the west side of the fault, the Nelson Creek Fault, yeah, it's got some pretty incredible rock samples from outcrop, so it's, it's in situ. And those range from 10 to 43 gram samples. You talk about ranges and then silver that's 29 to 46 gram silver. And, and then we've got some really high grade copper showings, 1.3 to 4.6 percent. And that's on surface. It's an area of about 300 meters long so far. And we've got one hole from last year that we drilled to the west. It went through the Nelson Creek Fault. And on the other side, it was mineralized the bottom 20 meters of that hole. And it's directly underneath this area. We look at it as the chance of being some sort of continuity. The, the mineralization probably goes all the way down. And it'll go from high to low and high to low. It looks to us very similar to the north boundary zone. We found that with high-grade outcrop. We drilled underneath it and hit that really high-grade zone of 38.7 grams over 10 meters. And that hole also had three other zones of pretty good grade. You know, and that kind of what got the whole thing going. So here we look like we've got an analog of that. We also are thinking that this is an area that faulted off of looks like a, it's called a slip fault. It's been replaced. There's been movement. And the west side of the fault, it looks like it's been moved south. And on the east side, it looks like it's moved north. The reason we say that now is because the alteration and mineralization in that one hole that came through and underneath the high-grade area we're looking at right now, it's the same mineralization and alteration as what's in the north boundary zone. We know last year, as we moved south from the north boundary zone on the east side of that fault, we lost the potassic alteration. The mineralization changed to more polymetallic, where you've got gold, silver, copper, and now lead and zinc. The north boundary zone didn't have the lead and zinc. 
and it had a high content of the alteration of potassic content, which gives us the impression that we're near a heat source. That's what the potassic alteration generally tells you. Now that we're on this other side of the fault, but we're farther south, we're still, we're in that same alteration as the north boundary zone. And then directly to the west of the area we're looking at, as you go up the other side of the valley, there's a very large mag anomaly there that has not been tested because as we move higher up, it's covered in scree and very difficult to get at. But I think with the pads we've got, we may be able to turn them around and drill into the anomaly underneath the scree, below the scree. So it's looking pretty positive. This is something we have to drill. And we've got a lot more information now. That's just a matter of the amount we've drilled over the last couple of years. And the geophysical database now, it's pretty fantastic. And, you know, it pointed us in this direction and the guys have gone in there and just confirmed everything. So, yeah, we're off to the races now. I'd like our listeners to go to the Aubin Resources website. And that website is aubinresources.com. And take a look at this news release that we are referring to. It's dated August 19th, 2020. So it's extremely recent. And, Jim, you've been conservative in talking about some of these numbers. But on one of the holes... FK18-10. The range is from 38.7 grams per ton gold over 10 meters, and you have an inclusion of 331 grams per ton. Now, my math isn't that good at this moment, but that is probably 10 ounces. And we don't know what else is there under the ground, but it's quite significant. Now, on whole FK17-05, you were referring to polymetallic find earlier and copper, but this is 21.5 grams per ton gold, 28. 5 grams per ton silver and 3.1% copper over 6 meters. That mm. may be a significant amount of copper. Now, you, the name of your company is Aubin Resources. It's not Aubin Gold. What do you do with a potential significant copper find? We don't know if it's significant yet, but what do you do with that? Do you call it gold equivalent or you, do you call it a copper resource? Well, we are predominantly a gold exploration company, but as the case is, especially up in that neck of the woods, you find generally a high-grade gold in association with high-grade copper. GT Gold is a good example of that. Our drilling in the north boundary zone is a good example of that. So quite often you've got both. You can either be a gold company with copper credits or a copper company with gold credits. But most big copper mines in that do have a pretty good gold content. So we like to look at gold look for gold, and the copper just, at the end of the day, if you build a resource, you're going to have a copper content to it. When these numbers first came out, I believe it was two summers ago, the market wasn't quite what it is right now. Not even close. We no. have an amazing market right now. So what do you expect to see over the next six months? You've been in the business for a long time. Or the next year, are we going to see potentially a market that we've never seen before where numbers like this are not just seasonal, but they're sustainable? Oh, I think, yeah, I think we're good for a few years here. You know, I don't see things correcting that the economy's overnight. I don't have a lot of faith in the V-shaped recovery because you're starting at a much lower point. And say that the markets have increased by X amount, it's relative to where they fell to, not relative to the historic numbers back in December, say. I just think that we're looking at some pretty good long-term effects on gold. It's going to be good. Could we see that effect really skyrocket in the juniors where companies like yours with today an 11 cent stock in the U.S. become potentially a, a dollar, two dollar, three dollar stock across the board? I'm not just talking about Aubin Resources, but oh, you know, all that's those. already happening. That's already happening. There's been a lot of companies that have gone from five cents to 50, 10 cents to whatever. I mean, you're seeing a lot of it. And there's a lot of people out there kind of mining the market, looking for anything that's 
under 10 cents. So you'll all of a sudden see these companies who've been sitting around for a long time get legs. It doesn't take much. It'll take a good hole, and then it's off to the races. But there will be a rising tide movement. There already is. What is the key to success here overall? If you want to mitigate risk, you spend a lot of time analyzing the process before you drill and so that when you drill your risk is lower and that's what we're shooting for here well jim it's always great to speak with you thank you so much for the clarity and the interview i look forward to an update as soon as you can provide us with one jim thanks you bet i've been speaking with james pettit the president and ceo of Aubin resources trading as abn on the tsx venture exchange and in the u.s as abnaf find their logo on our website ellismartreport.com I'm Ellis Martin. You may assume that Ellis Martin is a shareholder on any of the companies that sponsor the Ellis Martin Report, which means he has a vested interest potentially in them. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Grant Ewing, CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange. And in the U.S. on the OTC as RRRLF. Rockridge Resources is a new public mineral exploration company focused on the acquisition, exploration, and development of mineral resource properties in Canada. Grant, welcome back to the program today. Thanks, Ellis. Great to be here. You've got your drilling permit. You're ready to go. What's happening at the high-grade Rainy Gold Project? Today, we've announced that we've received the exploration permit. So this is necessary before we can get going with the drilling. We expect now to mobilize the drill for this program within the coming days here and get going with the drilling in early September. And what we're doing with this program is following up on the phase one drilling we completed earlier in the year, the highlight intercept uh, 28 gram per ton over six meters. And this program will follow up the down plunge of that high grade intercept as well as some other high grade intercept historically drilled here. And then we'll march out long strike and drill along this corridor. And importantly, our summer program provided some valuable data to more accurately define this corridor that hosts mineralization. The results of the summer program, so we're pretty excited to get going with this. It'll be a minimum 3,000 meter program in about nine or 10 holes. As I look at your share price, which we believe is potentially undervalued, and, and we're biased, of course, by saying that you're a sponsor of this program, there is room for... Nice upside if and when we see the results that we're expecting. Yeah, we agree. There's great potential, I think, for re-rating of this stock with exploration success. And that's really the value driver for Rockridge. Drill results will certainly move the needle for us, we believe. We're fully financed to do this program, just under $2 million in the Treasury. And so with success at this program, we're able to expand the program following the second phase here. So that's positive. And with a market cap of around $10 million Canadian today, we see this company as having a very attractive valuation. And let's talk about the region where you're drilling. It's an exciting area and underexploited, in my opinion. Yeah, that's right. Where we're exploring here is in the Swayze Greenstone Belt, a very active exploration and development area now. We've got two majors in the immediate area with Newmont just to the west with its Borden Mine and I Am Gold to the southeast with its large Cote development project. And in addition to that, there's a host of junior exploration companies in the district along with Rockridge. So very prospective for exploration and it would be classified as an underexplored area of this sub-province of the large Abitibi Greenstone Belt, which extends to the Timmins and Curtin Lake camps. Can we see a whole new range of mergers and acquisitions beginning maybe next year with all the 
huge interest in the gold sector right now? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a possibility. I think a lot of the senior companies still rely on the junior companies to do some of the early stage exploration and, and hopefully make discoveries. And that lot of success there will often lead to M&A activity as the intermediates and seniors come down market to acquire some of the early stage, but very attractive exploration assets. Companies potentially like Rockridge. Yeah, definitely. You know, with success here, we think we'd have certainly be a company that could potentially be quite interesting to some of the other intermediates and seniors in the area that would look to grow resources. Take us through the share structure. What does that look like? Yes, we've got 50 million shares roughly outstanding. So a nice tight capital structure. Insiders hold about 11% of the stock. And uh, as mentioned, we're fully financed here to go forward with this program and into follow-up programs as well. Grant, it's always great catching up with you. I look forward to more news when you have it. Thanks for joining me today in the program. Yeah, thanks very much, Ellis. I've been speaking with Grant Ewing, CEO of Rockridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange. And in the U.S. on the OTC as RRRLF. For more information on Rockridge Resources, go to the company's website, rockridgeresourcesltd.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. John Bianco is the president and chairwoman of the American Bondholders Foundation. Today we will discuss the fact that essentially China owes U.S. bondholders around $1.7 trillion from the 1900s and has never paid back a penny, although the U.S. has been paying $72 million in interest payments to China for our debt daily. Jana and the organization are trying to compel the administration to hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable for their debt. Jana, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start off by saying I'm extremely disappointed that it seems like the Chinese Communist Party, along with the seated Democrats that are now in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and almost 80, going back 50 or 60 years, are having their way with our country right now. Your thoughts? I couldn't agree more. It is very in-your-face, very evident. China needs to be held accountable, and these people need to be held accountable that's supposed to be representing the interests of the American people, not China. I wonder how it's even possible to hold them accountable when they've succeeded basically in convincing more than half the country that Biden is their guy. Well, Biden is their guy. There's no doubt about it. I mean, that's why I call him hashtag Beijing Biden. I mean, look, in 2011, Beijing Biden went to China and he cut a deal with them under the Obama administration. They get preferential treatment on our markets, our capital markets. They don't have to abide by the same rules. The Democrats as well as many Republicans run blockade for the pro-China lobby out there so that nothing is said negative about them. That is the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. And it must stop. It must end. America first. Well, how does it stop when you've got to think that the Chinese Communist Party have really infiltrated the Democrats? And as you say, some Republicans and through proxy or directly, they've been acquiring wealth for decades thanks to the Chinese Communist Party. Oh, it's very simple. Look, this isn't a complicated issue. The Chinese Communist Party and their propaganda, using the Democrats and some Republicans who put out there of, oh my gosh, don't yank the dragon's tail. They're financing our economy. They hold so many of our treasuries. We're so in debt to them. That is just absolutely false on its face. 
It is not true. The Chinese Communist Party and China in general owes more to the American people than what the American people owe to China. And at the end of the day, the simplicity of this is U.S. dollars. You stop the flow of U.S. dollars to the Chinese Communist Party. You force them to pay their defaulted sovereign debt, which is over $1.6 trillion owed to the American people right now in 46 states that's holding identical to a U.S. Treasury, except these were issued by China, sold through the New York markets. You make them pay that debt and you cut their companies off of U.S. capital markets, stop the flow of the U.S. dollar. They can't function. They cannot continue to build up their military base in the South China Seas illegally. They can't continue to go around the world using U.S. dollars that we as American people and American rogue businesses so anxious to get in bed with the Chinese use that money to buy allies around the world from corrupt politicians. It needs to stop. You cut the dollars, you cut them off at the knees. I believe that President Trump began to do that as soon as he got into office, bringing jobs back to this country and taking the Chinese on in the trade wars. And at some point, and he was winning, absolutely winning all the way across the board. And at some point, I'm going to say in January, early January during the Chinese New Year, the Chinese said, you know what? This has got to stop. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to level the playing field and introduce a virus to the rest of the world. And I didn't think the Chinese Communist Party was that evil. I didn't think that they had the chutzpah to go ahead and unleash this virus, knowing that perhaps it would be too much for our president and it would really level the playing field and look where we're at today. I couldn't agree more. Look, there is no doubt this was intentional. They couldn't beat Trump. Trump was winning. We were bringing manufacturing back. We were creating American jobs. Our economy was booming better than ever in the history of this country. And the only way to control that was via this virus, this Wuhan virus, which we know came from China. China could have stopped it. They didn't stop it. And it was intentional to directly affect our economy, costing trillions of dollars, the lives of the American people and those around the world. So it wasn't enough that China has sold trillions of dollars of intellectual property. It wasn't enough of their forced technology, their unbelievable human rights violations. That wasn't enough. They had to stop Trump because Trump was exposing them for who they really are and what their intentions are, not only towards the American people, but to the global world itself. And on top of that, I have to feel that the riots we've seen were instigated and funded in some part by the Chinese Communist Party, but I can't prove it. I can't draw any connections to that. It's pure speculation on my part. Oh, there's no speculation. You just haven't looked in the right place. I mean, that's the reason we shut down their embassy in Texas, because we knew that they were funding the riots. They were funding the propaganda and a lot of the upheaval that we see in society today. You and I, I feel like we're speaking to the choir. We're talking to only deplorables here. How do we breach that? How do we get to the other side? One of the reasons I haven't spoken up about this in a few weeks, because I did, I did quite a bit, is because I don't know what the way out is for us. Maybe you can enlighten us. There's a fantastic way out, and it's one that we presented to President Trump. And I'm here to tell you, it's going to be the next shoe that drops. And you're going to see a lot of congressional support, bipartisan. Despite politics, the American people come first. And what we're going to see and what we have proposed is that the bonds that Americans hold in this country be used to pay China the treasuries that they hold. Right now, we are sending $72 million a day in interest alone to China off of Chinese-held U.S. treasuries. That is taxpayers' money. 
$72 million a day. Can you imagine what that $72 million a day could do for Americans who are suffering, who have lost their jobs, who are losing their homes, who can't take care of their families because of who? China and their Wuhan virus. So you bring in these bonds that 20,000 families hold in 46 states, which is what we've recommended to the Trump administration and the law, Congress approved in the law to utilize these bonds to basically pay China with their very own paper. They paid the same bonds to Great Britain in 1987, but no U.S. administration until President Trump came along has held China accountable. So it's very simplistic. Eliminate that 1.1 trillion that China holds, take away that stronghold and utilize those hundreds of billions of dollars back into the U.S. economy. The Democrats control Congress. They don't want that deal. Why do they not want that deal? It's better for their people. And furthermore, it doesn't require congressional approval. It's already been approved by Congress. It's already in law. The Treasury Secretary has the authority by direction of the president. So it's not required to have a vote in Congress, the House or the Senate. But I can tell you that in the 19 years as representing the American Bondholders Foundation and its founder, this has always been a very bipartisanly supported issue. And if you look at the Hong Kong Autonomy Act and many other issues involving China, it has been across the board bipartisanly supported. Democrats, Republicans alike know China, the Chinese Communist Party is an existential threat to our country and to the world, and they need shut down. You've gone on record that you're not a fan of Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. How do you get around that and put forth your agenda? It's very simple. He works for the President of the United States, and it simply takes the President to say, I want this done. It's very simple. I mean, we're not talking about President Mnuchin. He is the Treasury Secretary, and he works at the behest of the President for and on behalf of the American people. It's very simple. So what are the next steps? What are you doing to make that happen? Well, we're working with the Senate and the House in garnering support on a, a bipartisan joint House-Senate concurrent resolution encouraging President Trump to do the American Bondholders Foundation proposal that has been submitted to him. It doesn't even require an executive order. A presidential memorandum would suffice, or a phone call to say, Secretary Mnuchin, I want to uphold the rule of law. I am a law and order president. And the law says China has to honor its financial obligations to the American people and get this deal done. It's very simple. So this is something that our president, President Donald J. Trump, has to do now. It cannot wait. It cannot wait. China must be held accountable. And I can assure you, this will be the next shoe to drop. There is no legal reason whatsoever that this is not done and can't be done immediately. It's all politics, and it's the ruthless pro-China lobby pushing against it, and Wall Street firms not wanting to rock the boat with China so that they can continue to send more money of investors and American money to China. And that's what this boils down to. It's very clear in the law. I've been watching the markets very carefully because it's my business to do so. And I see that the markets have responded favorably, in my opinion, to two things. Putin's so-called discovery of a vaccine for the coronavirus and perhaps the new Democratic ticket featuring Kamala Harris on it. And gold doesn't like stability, so... 
It has dropped in the last day and a half. I see a perception of everything is going to be okay after the election if Biden wins. But on the contrary, our country will be another wholly owned subsidiary of the Chinese Communist Party if that happens. And we simply cannot allow that to happen. We have got to get tough on China. Look, right now, the American people don't even realize their pork industry, like Smithfield Foods and so many other of our critical infrastructure is owned by the Chinese Communist Party. And the American people need to wake up and say enough is enough. America first, America only, and start pushing back on the Chinese Communist Party and their infiltration, their takeover. We've seen what they've done with their Confucius Institute and the mindset and the mind alteration uh, to our youth. It must stop. No more socialism, no more communism, no more Chinese Communist Party. Get them out of our country, get them out of our businesses, get them out of every one of our local, city, state, and federal governments. The buck stops here. And I think with President Donald J. Trump, we're going to see that happen. He's vowed to hold them accountable, and I think that he will. I'm confident that he will. It is important to know that the entire law firm of Baker Hostetler came in behind the ABF and many, many other senior level people in D.C. reinforcing our legal position, the legal authorities. This is nothing but politics. That's all that is. And the only person right now standing in the way of making this happen is Steve Mnuchin. But think about it. He made all his money in China. He's a Goldman Sachs guy. And he made all his movies. I mean, the last movie he did, China funded $500 million for it. And so that is the holdup right there, bottom line. And so it's a matter of getting around that and the president saying, we're going to hold China accountable. Whether you like it or not, Mr. Mnuchin, here's how this has to be done. 20% of every penny collected goes to an already approved 501c3 nonprofit to benefit our law enforcement, our volunteer firefighters, our first line of defense. I testified before this in Congress in 2003 and it has to happen. We've got to hold them accountable and start taking our country back step by step and getting it back on track. I want it to be the country I grew up in and I'm sure you grew up in. Jonna, how do our listeners find you? Our website is AmericanBondholdersFoundation.com. We can be found on Twitter at ABF USA or on Facebook at ABF Bondholders. But you will see some congressional support coming out coming out in the media and on social media. And I encourage every American to reach out to the White House, to their congressional leader and say, the buck stops here and now, hold China accountable to the American people. John Bianco, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you. I've been speaking with John Bianco, the president and chairwoman of the American Bondholders Foundation. The website is AmericanBondholdersFoundation.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Sally Huayar, political refugee and prime minister of the East Turkestan government in exile, based in Washington, D.C. The East Turkestan government in exile, ETGE, is a democratically elected body representing the interests of East Turkestan and its people. The ETGE seeks to restore East Turkestan's independence as a democratic, secular, pluralistic republic that guarantees human rights and freedom for all. East Turkestan has effectively been occupied by China since December 22, 1949, and is referred to by the Chinese Communist Party as Xinjiang. Our discussion today shall include the plight of the native Muslim population, the Uyghur, and their subsequent subjugation. Prime Minister, welcome back to the program. Nice to have you on the air with us today. 
Thank you for having me. Glad to be back. What have you been doing this past week? I understand you've been quite active where you live in Washington, D.C. Yes, one of the things that we have been doing is to call on the U.S. government to end its trade deal with China, while also urging the U.S. government to actually recognize the atrocities that China is committing against Uyghur and other Turkic peoples' uh, genocide. I've been watching a few videos of expatriates that are living around the world from the Uyghur Muslim population of East Turkestan, and the story's pretty much the same everywhere, with genocide, with organ harvesting, with slave labor, you would think we were talking about something going on in the 20th century, something in Europe, something in Japan, but this is 21st century China, and really, you can sanction whoever you want, you can stop a trade deal with China, but how do you get them to stop what they're doing as part of their credo for a world domination? Well, one of the things is to actually put these people on trial, engage in actual meaningful sanctions against high-level government officials that are obviously responsible for these atrocities to effectively boycott Chinese goods, stop doing trade with China, period. That's going to hurt them economically to where they are going to have to reconsider their policies, what they've been doing, and in a way stop these atrocities. But sometimes we have to be a little bit more forceful by taking the initiative to actually try these people for genocide like we did during the Nuremberg trials and the aftermath of the International Tribunal on the Yugoslavia. Governments can also file a parallel complaint at the International Court of Justice, parallel complaint to the one that we filed at the ICC, and ask the international community, ask the UN to uphold the Genocide Convention and stop these atrocities. You referenced the Nuremberg trials, but they, of course, happened after the conclusion of World War II. Are you suggesting some type of war with China? No, I'm not suggesting that we go to war with China. I'm I'm suggesting that we engage in actual meaningful trade sanctions. In fact, disengage in terms of economics, in terms of political diplomacy with China, and call on other countries to do the same, and ultimately pressure the Chinese government. Once the Chinese government is weakened, I think that the people inside China and its occupied territories will have the opportunity to push back against the government and bring about a change, a revolutionary change, ideally like the way that Gandhi did in India. And then afterwards, then we can put these people on trial. But even before that, we can start the trial, start the investigations and trials even before that happens. Well, that's a great way of facilitating all of this. I understand completely, and of course the press that would be related to this would be monumental. What I find fascinating about this entire situation, if you call it fascinating at all, I think it's very, very tragic, is that nothing is happening right now. There's nothing going on to stop any of this. I guess these are still early days. And is there enough dissent in China, not just with minority populations, but across the board, to say, you know what, we don't want this type of government anymore? What are you hearing? Absolutely. I mean, there's dissent amongst the Chinese population, amongst occupied countries like uh, Tibet, Hong Kong, East Turkestan, Mongolia, Manchuria, even religious groups in China like Christians, Falun Gong. There's even reports that there's dissent within the Chinese Communist Party itself because some of them think that they're pushing too far and whereas others, the extreme hardliners, and they're saying, no, we have to continue with this policy. So as I said, the world needs to disengage with China and say, we're not 
going to engage with a regime like this until you fix yourself. And this will add more pressure both internally and the people themselves. They can go on strikes, mass demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations like the way Gandhi did and bring about change that way. And then ultimately we can hold these ruthless Chinese tyrants, the dictators, the communists like Xi Jinping and others accountable and put them on trial like the Nuremberg trials, uh, you know, prosecute them. You would think this is a bipartisan issue. I'm going to ask you, is it? Are you speaking to both Democrats and Republicans who are in full agreement with you? And what more do you expect them to do as politicians? Well, I would say this is largely, I would hope this is a largely bipartisan issue. The Republicans are more serious about the issue. They recognize the serious threat that China poses, not just to its own people or territories occupied by it, but to democracy, freedom, and human rights all across the world. You have Democrats in Congress that are also working together with the Republicans on this. The administration has to take more effective measures, and this has to come from Congress as well. Congress needs to be like, this is enough. We need to recognize the atrocities for what it is. It's a genocide. We need to support the aspirations of the people in Tibet, in Hong Kong, East Turkestan, and other parts, and we need to disengage with China. One of our mutual friends and associates, Prime Minister, mentioned to me on the phone the other day that there's organ harvesting going on and the people are alive. Would you care to comment on that? Yes, unfortunately, organ harvesting has been going on for decades. Initially, the Chinese government would harvest the organs of Falun Gong and Uyghur and other political prisoners. However, in recent years, the organ market has actually been booming in China, and so especially amongst Muslim people across the Middle East. So the Chinese government has been specifically targeting Uyghurs and Uyghur and other Turkic Muslims and harvesting their organs and selling them as, quote, halal organs, end quote, to Muslims across the world. I understand what halal means, but as I read it, and this is even hard for me to speak about, with regard to animals that you might consume, these animals are killed in a way that is not stressful so that the meat is tastier. I can't understand harvesting organs from Muslims that are alive in East Turkestan, in Xinjiang, and that not being stressful. I don't see how any of this works. Yes, I mean, it's just a very corrupt way of making a few extra bucks for the Chinese Communist Party, but also improving its ties, I guess, with the Muslim world. And ironically, halal in this concept means that they haven't consumed any haram products. So haram in this concept would mean like consuming pork, consuming alcohol, stuff like that. Saying that these people have always been faithful, their organs are pure, so you can put them in your body, you can replace your organs with theirs, and you, you won't have a problem. But the fact that these people are being slaughtered in a ruthless way, having their organs harvested and these Muslims are not even questioning, you know, where are my organs coming from? It's not like they don't know that China is locking up millions of people in concentration camps. They know this. But unfortunately, the Muslim majority countries around the world are silent on our issue. In fact, they are on the side of China on this issue and they've expressed this at the UN and other places saying that they side with China and that China is doing the right thing. So the Muslim world, per se, is complicit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's mostly because of China's Belt and Road Initiative. And also because historically, even when China was weak during the 1960s, it gave a lot of support 
to the Muslim world, especially on the issue of Palestine. And so it's like the Muslim world is like, well, China backed us then, so now we have to back China. I, I don't know. I think you do know, actually. The Belt and Road Initiative, which you mentioned, essentially China is paying countries around the world to co-opt their real estate, co-opt their businesses, co-opt their resources, and paying everybody handsomely from all walks of life politicians, contractors, and the list goes on. And really, it's all about following the money and money talks. Absolutely. I mean, this is a at least a trillion dollar, if possibly a multi-trillion dollar initiative that China started back in 2013 to help achieve its Chinese dream of becoming the most powerful economic, military, and political power in the world. And so effectively, like you said, they're pouring money into the pockets of corrupt officials. These investments that China is pouring into these countries, it's not benefiting those countries in the long run. Even in the short run, it's not benefiting them. The only people that are benefiting from this are the corrupt officials that are pocketing this money, whereas these other countries, they're actually being set up for future colonization in a way. The main issue in stopping all of this, if you don't mind me saying so, is highlighting the situation in Shenzhen and the plight of the Muslim people there. Yes, I think once people understand what's happening in East Turkestan, I think they will recognize that, you know, this is something that could very well happen to them in the next couple of decades if they continue down this path. Because China initially, you know, when it invaded and occupied East Turkestan, the first few years did the same thing, saying, you know, we're going to help develop your country, we're going to help modernize it. And then through our corrupt leaders, they managed to control our country and then began to, you know, engage in a purge of anyone that resisted Chinese influence or control of our country. Do you see that happening in the U.S. right now? Some sort of purge going on through the auspices of the wholly owned subsidiary of the Chinese Communist Party, the Democratic Party of the United States of America, or the people that run the party, not necessarily the, the kind voters in this country? Well, I mean, I don't see that necessarily that type of purge happening in the U.S., but it is something that could definitely happen if China gets a lot of influence. And thankfully, right now, under the current administration, the U.S. government has actually been pushing back against China and Chinese influence. So I don't see that Chinese will be able to purge American officials or anything like that or spread their tentacles to where they can engage in this type of activities. I mean, they had almost gotten to that point under the previous administration. So long as America continues down this road, pushing back against China, I don't think we'll have that problem here. It's been my position and that of others that this Wuhan virus was intentionally shared with the rest of the world during the Chinese New Year back in January. How has the virus been used in East Turkestan to subjugate the population, to infect the population there? Is that part of the genocide? Yes. So we believe that it's the same thing. While the Chinese government shut down Wuhan and access to other parts of China, but deliberately let it open to going outside to the rest of the world. They also deliberately let people from Wuhan go into East Turkestan. Currently, they have locked up everyone in their homes and even welded their doors in saying that they're preventing the spread of the coronavirus, effectively locking people up, many of who don't have food or other supplies at home. So they're pretty much going to starve in many cases. But also... In the concentration camps, a lot of people are in these places. And one thing that's not being mentioned by the media is the high rate of tuberculosis in East Turkestan. We have the highest rate of tuberculosis in the world, and many of these are being left untreated. And so, in a way, China could use this coronavirus to cover up and just leave these people untreated and let them die and then write it off as a natural death or death caused by the coronavirus. What can our listeners do right now to help? 
So listeners, what they can do is right now we're trying to push three different bills and resolutions in Congress. So one of them is the Forced Labor Prevention Act, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, trying to get that passed through Congress. So if we could call our members of Congress, House of Representatives, Senators, and urge them to push forward with that act, to vote yes and sign on to that act, and then also to urge them to sponsor an act that would recognize the atrocities in East Turkestan as a genocide, while also recognizing East Turkestan as a occupied country. These are simple things that won't even take five minutes to write an email or make a phone call. Other things that we can do is obviously spread awareness about the situation. People around us that haven't heard about East Turkestan just have them Google East Turkestan. Just tell people around your community, Google East Turkestan, Google the Uyghurs. Find out, learn more about what's happening to the Uyghurs, that there's a 21st century genocide occurring as we speak. The last time I looked, pretty much everything we've purchased, I've purchased, many folks have purchased, come from China. I don't believe we have the manufacturing capability yet to wean ourselves from China without the help of some of the countries in Southeast Asia. Do you have any solutions for that? Yeah, India, for example, is a great solution. India, Vietnam, Thailand, Bangladesh. I mean, these are all countries that are slowly developing and have those capabilities to manufacture the goods that we are uh, consuming. In fact, Every day, I see more and more products that are now coming from India and Bangladesh instead of China, which is a good thing. I would suggest boycotting Chinese goods and try to go for other alternatives that are from like India and neighboring countries like Bangladesh and others that are not engaging in mass human rights violations or, quite frankly, a genocide. That sounds like a great initiative. Prime Minister Salihudiyar, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to another conversation very soon. Likewise. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Salih Huayar, political refugee and prime minister of the East Turkestan government in exile, based in Washington, D.C. Again, we ask that you visit the website nationalawakening.org. For the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Ellis Martin. Thoughts, comments, criticisms, accolades, praise, admonishments, pats on the back, all welcomed. Email us at martinreports at gmail.com and tell us how you really feel. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Suda, the president and CEO of Gold Terror Resource Corp, trading under the symbol YGT on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the United States as TRXXF. Gold Terra owns a 100% interest in the Yellowknife City Gold Project, encompassing 790 square kilometers of contiguous land within 12 kilometers of the city of Yellowknife. The project is located in the prolific Yellowknife Greenstone Belt, covering 70 kilometers of strike length along the main mineralized break in proximity to the former high-grade Khan and Giant gold mines, which have produced over 14 million ounces of gold. The Yellowknife City Gold Project is close to vital infrastructure, including all-season roads, air transportation, service providers, hydroelectric power, and skilled tradespeople. Dave, welcome back to the program. Nice to have you on the air today. It's great to be back on. It's been a while. Dave, we have new listeners all the time, and they're coming into the program right now just learning about the gold sector because all the buzz about the gold prices lately. So if you don't mind, I know we've covered it before, but give our audience an overview of the company. I'd be delighted to. 
And I don't blame people for turning to the gold sector. There is an element of fear of missing out, and we don't want anyone to miss out, so let's give them a good rundown. And I'm going to keep it simple. I'm going to say, first of all, my name is David Suda, and I joined Gold Terra, then TerraX, for three simple reasons. I thought there was a gold cycle coming, and I'm glad that that has happened. It's taken a little longer than I thought. Number two, I wanted to be involved with a company where there was a large opportunity, a company where there was deep value to be had. And number three, I wanted that to be with a project that had high-grade gold in a great jurisdiction right next to town. And those are the hallmarks of what Gold Terra is all about. So since joining and since identifying that opportunity, as you said, things have changed drastically in the world. We're seeing a gold price that's currently $1,800 and people are calling for 3000 I think that there are a lot of projects out there and there are a lot of teams. We happen to have a project that I believe is one of the best in Canada. The potential is huge. It's high grade. And we have a management team that is spectacular. We've put together a team and a board with a track record of experience and success. We're led by myself. I come from a background in equity capital markets and over the course of my career working with public companies, mostly focused on mining, I've seen ups and downs, but through those ups and downs, I've been able to identify people and teams that have been successful and one of the most successful that I identified, one of the best was Gerald Panaton, who's joined our company last fall and he has a track record of success by way of his building Detour Gold, which sold to Kirkland Lake for nearly $5 billion. I suspect that had that transaction happened in today's market, you could add a significant amount of value to that. So what Gerald and I are trying to do together with the support of a very strong board is to build another one of those. And I think what's changed, Ellis, since we last spoke, to give you sort of a simple update, is really we're on at the dawn or a turning point in our company for our exploration programs. We're going from having drilled lower grade material in the wintertime when there was less interest in the cycle to now going to our high grade and most exciting targets. And we're going to be drilling those for the rest of the year. We're aiming to put out a resource update. So we're very excited. And this time around, we're not going to be telling the public about what we're going to be doing and then hopefully raising the cash to do it. We're fully cashed. We just closed the deal, which was led by BMO with a strong syndicate of partners. We had participation from long-term investors and we were able to raise over $7 million. So we are fully funded to go out and achieve our drilling goals for this late summer and fall. And by BMO to our American audience, that's the Bank of Montreal. It's a very significant bank in Canada leading this raise. That's no small feat at all. Congratulations to you. Let's talk about the Christorum deposit, which has indicated in the past some high-grade intercepts. And that's where you're going to be drilling next month in the middle of August with about a 10,000-meter drill program, if I'm not correct. Yes. Our goal is to, by year's end, drill approximately 10,000 meters. We're going to start off drilling four to seven holes at Crestorum. And Crestorum is a very prolific target. It does make up a portion of our current 43-101 inferred resource. It has produced some extremely exciting intercepts in the past. If people look at our stock price chart, and you can see that it's blipped up to close to a dollar. You can also go through our news flow and see the type of intercepts that some of these high-grade targets have produced. But one thing that hasn't been done is 
these have not been drilled to any sort of real depth. They'd only drilled sort of down to about 200 meters. So the focus of this campaign, as we start out here, leading out of late summer into early fall, is going to be to drill down to greater depths, say 400 meters subsurface. And at that point, obviously, if we see similar results as we've seen in the shallower drilling in the past, then we'll be in very good shape to update our resource come year end. So this is an extremely interesting time given the market background. And it's also a perfect time to be drilling high grade because it's great to put out low grade results. There are many companies that are doing it. We did it in the late winter, spring, but what investors want to see are high grade results and so do we. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Now with the low grade, it's significant and it's economic. We don't want to disparage that at all, but actually you're right. Investors do want to see high grade in this market. And again, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm a media guy. I'm not a geologist. So if you have significant grade at shallow intercepts, doesn't it stand to reason that when you go deeper, you could find even more significant grade potentially? Well, I'm not a geologist either, but I'm working with two of the best. And we're targeting this in a way that we're taking all of the data that we've gathered from our previous drilling and the historical drilling in the area, and we're taking that to drill in the most effective way possible. So needless to say, we wouldn't be drilling to these greater depths if we didn't think there was significant mineralization below what we already know. And if I could just add for investors, we did drill very successfully this winter under the direction of Gerald Panaton and Joe Campbell. We are going to apply many of those same principles to this high-grade deposit. So we're effectively supercharging our chances of generating more shareholder value here. And, and it's just a very exciting time. I mean, we're, we're so pleased to be funded to be drilling high-grade. Especially during these challenging times that every other sector seems to be seeing. It's sort of interesting. It's bittersweet in a way, but gold is not an overnight sensation. We've all been in the business for many years, especially you. And to see gold do what it's doing during a global pandemic and an economic crisis is there's an opportunity here that we should all take advantage of. Absolutely. And you can just feel it. Again, I, I use the word FOMO. Fear of missing out is starting to creep into our sector. And there are a lot of projects out there, as I said, and there are a lot of management teams. And I feel that we're very fortunate to be at the top of the heap. All boats will float, but some are going to plane. And we certainly feel that our project is, you know, our share price hasn't moved Ellis very much. That's the other thing is there has already been a move in the gold sector. A lot of stock prices have seen an appreciation. But as we were tied up in our financing, we were unable to be out in the public. We weren't able to be marketing. We weren't in the public eye. And now we are. And so for those who feel that they may have missed the boat, Certainly, we feel that our stock price still has a long way to go. Well, it's interesting that you say that. There's many people that don't like to invest in a company, especially here in the United States, with a share price under a dollar, under $2, under $4. But honestly, in this particular sector, this is potentially where the double bangers, the five bangers, the 10 bangers can happen because... Even the companies with the highest share prices right now, they started out 15 cents, 30 cents, 40 cents. Their IPOs were often at 10 cents. So the upside, the upside is potentially really huge and you don't necessarily get that opportunity at other entry points. Everybody likes to come in when the stock is soaring, but really this particular time may be the best time to get involved if that's your choice. 
I think one of the things that a lot of investors, especially younger investors, need to focus on and recognize is that there have been some really juicy moves in other sectors. And gold in particular has been not necessarily out of favor, but it hasn't been prime time. It hasn't been in the spotlight. And I encourage anybody who's listening to this interview to take a look at our stock price, take a look at the stock prices of other gold companies, and then go back and take a look at how some of these equities performed in the past and what the opportunity is. Because the people that are involved in this sector have been in it for a long time. They understand. They've positioned themselves. And now there's an opportunity for all those who haven't been there, who haven't necessarily understood the potential to join the party. There's a question that a lot of Americans that are new, again, new to the gold sector and new to a Canadian story may be asking, well, it's a Canadian company. How do I become involved? How do I actually purchase the stock? And I need to share this with the audience because it's really important. I just became a shareholder recently, even though I've been covering your company since November of last year, November, December of last year. I became a shareholder because I'm reluctant. I'm a little late at times because I really want to get a feeling for the company, the management team, which I know personally, I've met most of you, and that's super important. Not everybody can meet the management team, but they can certainly hear the management team through broadcasts like this. So I recently became a shareholder, and it was so easy. I did it online with E-Trade, actually. I'm not necessarily plugging E-Trade, but you do have a U.S. symbol, and it's really simple to become a shareholder in a Canadian company if that's your choice. Absolutely, and we do have many shareholders from the United States, some of our best and longest standing shareholders are from the United States. We're so happy to have you as a shareholder, Ellis. We plan to generate as much value for you as we can. We work night and day, and the reason we do that is because we see the opportunity. We know we have a great asset. We know that we're undervalued. We know our stock hasn't moved, so we're just pushing, pushing, pushing to make sure that everybody we know and everybody we don't know has the same chance to get in. Well, you know, I can be emotional, but I'm not emotional with my trades and my purchases. I'm here for the long run. I purchased the stock and I'm not looking at it constantly to see if I've made any money today. I know that that potentially is coming in the future and I'm real excited about it because I came in at a really good entry point. Well, we're so happy to know that. And as I said, rest assured, we believe that the asset and our team both have the ability to really deliver here. Dave, it's always great to chat with you. I look forward to more updates when they come. Thanks for joining me today in the program. Thanks a lot, Ellis. We look forward to coming back to you with results. I've been speaking with David Suda, the president and CEO of Gold Terror Resource Corp, trading under the symbol YGT on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the United States as TRXXF. Visit the company's website, goldterracorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Visit ellismartinreport.com.